0: Welcome to Sardisms, where we take great ideas and bring them together to have great conversations. This week, we speak with Sam Shaw, who is a Chief Medical Strategy Officer, amongst other ventures. Sam has an interest in improving access to services, behavior change, and digital care delivery. Welcome. How did you end up in the the health tech battle arena? How did you end up? How did you end up in this war?
1: So I started off uh, a long time ago, wanting to become a dental surgeon, and that was a really odd choice of things to do. And I went to work for a GP, and I ended up first of all being involved in installing the first ever version of Enis, and that was like my first job. He was like, "Oh, you, you know something about computers? Come and work for me and install this thing." And I was only like 16 at the time, and I sort of did this for a while, and it was really interesting. It still didn't change my mind. I did not want to become a doctor. Uh, so off I went and um, thought, oh, okay, I'll get to dental school. But basically, along the way, I took some time out and ended up going to work for a really well-known retailer and ended up working on retail technology and then financial services technology. You can tell us. Who's that? Um, oh, yeah. Well, so I went to work, for first of all, for this thing called Don Lewis and then um, was involved in setting up... Um, JohnLewis.com, which was UKBuy.com, bringing it into the UK, oh, okay. yep. and then creating Ocado. Yep. and then went from there to go and do some financial services tech for um, what was John Lewis Financial Services, that became HSBC.
0: Were you really early in the John Lewis e-commerce setup? I was there. I was there physically
1: creating the site. John Lewis now. Do
0: you know there was we in, in a company I set up prior to SAAD, um, called Mango Swiss. We built loads of e-commerce sites. We built things in Magento and stuff like that. Um, and it was with my uncle. And one thing we commonly referred to was the John Lewis menu, as we refer to it, was a navigation menu at the top it was really well structured and it broke down. It had each department and then you could immediately see like a kind of mega menu of the sub departments underneath it. So you could very quickly eyeball where it was you needed to get to from this mega menu uh, at the top. And I don't know whether you had an involvement in that, but we we often, I referred to it for years. I still refer, if I phoned up my uncle now, I would say John Lewis menu and he'd go, oh yeah.
1: So it was interesting. That came from our internal um, intranet. So we started off, our intranet looked like that. And then our extranet became the same And then our customer-facing site looked the same. Now, the irony was people's expectations at that point at the late 90s, 1999, 2000, were really low. So um, people won't believe it. But when that site was first created, the order came through on the other side. It was printed off... And someone ran around the warehouse or a shop, uh, and we did most of it out of London, so we did it out of Acton. They ran round, and someone physically went to a cash register in the building and tapped in the the card number or whatever <laughs> to charge it through. And of course, on the and then then you go, it send it back up, and someone sends an email back to whoever placed the order, to say, "Oh, our new order is being dispatched or whatever." There was nothing digital about it beyond it being the website. Yep. so it was really interesting about where we started, and that got me interested in this whole space tech, consumer tech. Um, and then it kind of took me into um, financial services. Then I started creating the first online monetary systems. So this was when people first... Started having access to bank statements online and, and creating those systems and the entire thing as to how do you generate a password and how do you renew a password and how do you sort all that out and create help desk for these things. So that was that was interesting. And then I decided, okay, well, I better be serious now and finish finish my training as a as a yeah. dental surgeon. So did that. Went into primary care and went to work in a practice. So so how
0: long were you in in John Lewis? How long were you doing that kind of like tech world? Total, it was almost uh, five years. Right. And then you went back to dental school. Uh, Then I finished, uh, then
1: I went to HSBC for a little bit, in between did a few other sort of financial services Mm. pieces, then um, carried on, completed dentistry. uh, And after that, went into practice. And I went into practice really interesting. But at that time in general dental practice, it was quite low tech, you know, computer systems barely existed. Radiography was manual. We had wet films that you had to process. So uh, I thought, okay, well, I can do something useful here and, and um, put in some digital first sort of EHR in the practice I was working in. it's fairly basic at that time and um, did that. And then realized this is interesting, but I want to go and do something else. I went to hospital went to hospital and started my mixed training across um surgery across public health and academia which is the most bizarre mix but um i loved it and i did it and i got to do some more stuff so i got to work in a pct and clinical governance is a new thing i was like well you don't need all this paper why don't we just create like an access database with the front end and that means that you go out you can do this and they're like what are you talking about and They got quite excited that I could do something that kind of looked nice, felt nice, and cut down all the work for them. So uh, sort of did things like that, and then sort of showed them how to manipulate data. So I was like, well, if you're going to work out how many people are coming through? Why don't we extract some data and play with some data? And for them, it was new. Like Nobody there knew how to use Excel or create pivot tables. I was like, it's fairly basic, but let's do this. So um, that was quite interesting. And I realized at that point that, probably didn't want to go and become a proper surgeon I decided to switch into public health so um went into public health trained in public health and um took a sort of tangent into health economics um, and my real reason sort of for doing that was that i it was quite nice to play with numbers create lots of really interesting models using numbers data um, and so I did that. And then at the end of it, I decided to go off into consulting, to management consulting. And I was really lucky. When I went into management consulting, there was a, bit of a boom at that point in the health sector, which may not be a good thing for uh, the health system. I went to a consulting firm that was quite small. It was very small. I only had like 20-odd people in it at the time. And I got to work on a whole range of projects, everything from what was then called three-digit number which, of course, later on I inherited is 111, which is something that then followed me for about 10 years. Yep. So we,
0: we were you with Tony Yates? Tony worked with me. Yeah. So Tony and I worked in the same team for quite a long uh-huh, time. Because we had Tony on the podcast.
1: So Tony probably told you all about ITK. Um, uh, and yeah, so I worked completely, I number when it was still a concept... Um, and then worked on lots of other projects in um, healthcare. So some were, some was on health inequalities, on the Marmot Review. But other things were relating to um, projects like three digit number or mergers of trusts at that time. And then when I kind of got to the got part way through and realised, okay, I'll go and I'll go now and go and do some serious work again in practice. So I went back to practice. But very soon realized starting to get a bit bored. So, I went back into a mixture of roles in health service. I went to work for some CCGs and got involved in buying a health integration engine. So, I was involved in bringing Orion into Camden PCT, became CCG. So, the CIDA project at that time um, with, the, with a great bunch of people there. Uh, started working on other things like all the work on when I went back, I inherited. 111 as a project implementation project so I was working in NHS England the CCGs implementing 111 and it sort of went from there and um, got really involved in those projects around bringing 111 and all the technology that went with it Um, and then soon after that got involved in electronic referrals for uh, lots of things but one in particular was dentistry so uh, ran the first procurement for a Non NHS ERS system uh, across the southeast of England for NHS England, um, and that went really well in the end, and uh, got implemented and still being used today. Um, and and then like that, got involved in lots of different projects. And um, as time went on, sort of dragged into various things. Is
0: this all within the management consultancy? The small? No, no. I was
1: I was I'd left then by about uh, twenty. Uh, 2011, I'd left uh, consulting, and by 2013, 2012, 2013, I was back in the system. So I was working for some CCGs for Health Education in England.
0: So working for the NHS. Working for the NHS.
1: Yeah. Um, so I was you know back in house across a whole range of different parts of the NHS, doing some clinical work, some public health work, some stuff in education, um, a little bit in commissioning, and and carried on. And I was really lucky; I got to work on everything from the setup of the. Um, National Information Board, uh, and then the transition of HSCIC to NHS Digital, the creation of some new programs. And and two that I got very involved in was clinical triage platforms and one-on-one online. Um, And eventually I inherited those programs as well as others when I became the senior responsible officer and took on the director role. And um, so that's sort of been my, my meandering through healthcare, health tech and Certainly in the last few years, I've been really lucky that I got to work with some amazing people that I learned so much from because uh, there are some fantastic people in healthcare and health tech who have done a phenomenal amount to develop the system and make things work. And what was great was working with them and understanding what their needs were, and understanding what help they needed to make sure that their position could be maintained, that they that whatever it was that they, they believed in, we could bring through in whatever case we were taking to a board or trying to get a decision. And one thing I really took from that was avoiding the top-down piece. It was really easy as a director or someone fairly senior that you could very easily make a decision, and you could always make it blindly. And the great thing about working with that very, very mixed multidisciplinary team was just learning from such a broad bunch of people. And the first thing I did when I took that role, I realized there was some dysfunction there between the teams. We had a team in NHS Digital. We had a team in NHS England. We had some teams out in the regions. We had some teams out in provider organizations. And the very first thing I aimed sort of to do um, in my first three months was try and bring all of those together So they didn't think of themselves as being separate teams, but all part of one team delivering that same outcome. And it was great. We started bringing some tooling, like basic things like Slack. And Slack was banned at that point. We weren't allowed to use Slack. So we brought in Slack and put everyone on the same channel across the system and just created random things like allowing people from out in the system to come in and sit with us and hot desk inside the offices in, in, in London or Leeds. Um, forget the boundary between HS Digital and HS England. Just make it one single team across the two within my, my unit. And things like that really helped. But what made the biggest difference in people? Like we had lots of people that really cared and wanted to make a difference. And they were really interested in going out there, meeting patients, meeting clinicians, meeting people answering phones, meeting people in the ambulances. Um, and I, and I, I had one of the most amazing portfolios. I had digital urgency care. So that was ambulances, emergency departments, urgent treatment centers, out of hours, one-on-one, urgent dentistry. It was absolutely fantastic because you could really see that when you made things better, those people who were receiving care actually benefited from it. But it was a booking to get into a service, whether it was getting through online to have their case referred to a clinician, but just getting through on the phones much faster. You could could see how you could reduce the friction for a population and make things better. Everything down to making a bit of a record visible to a clinician making a decision when that wasn't available before, or something as simple as putting in electronic prescribing in a um, GP out-of-hours hub. And these are all small things, but they made a difference to the users, either patients or clinicians. And that was really important. So it's great to work with people that really cared. Um, And my job was to help make it happen. I didn't do all the doing. They did all the hard work, and I just learned loads from them. Mm. But it's great to help them make it happen.
0: Yeah. That sounds really cool. So then, you, where did you go from there? You went to NHSX.
1: So NHS England was was in existence, and in about end of twenty nine, end of twenty eighteen, a discussion emerged at that point around the creation of this thing called NHSX, and we were all quite positive about about it or remain quite positive about it. And there's some good people in the system that thought, okay, well, let's give this a go. I didn't really have much choice, if I'm honest about it. I think the Secretary of State had decided this was existing and the people around them had decided this was existing. I think, and it's my view, that their perception as to why it needed to exist was because they had a view about progress in the system and whether or not things were going to be achieved. They had some worries about NHS England, NHS Improvement, and NHS Digital, And so part of that was creating this unit. And afterwards, this narrative emerged about why this unit was being created, why is it called NHSX? And then there's this idea, well, there's an X, let's make it about user experience and experience. I don't think that was where it started off, Mm. but that became a narrative. So
0: cynically, it was a view that NHS Digital, NHS Improvement, NHS England were sort of malfunctioning in some way. Let's start again, let's create Greenfield and... Just purely saying, oh well, I want to create my own new thing. I want to create my own blank canvas. Is doesn't sound like a reasonable premise to to create a new department. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm fine with it. To be honest,
1: <laughs> it, it certainly felt like there was let's create something new because and and, and it was create something new without really understanding what did not didn't work. Because the reasons that things didn't work weren't because of the organizations or even the people. They were because of the structures that had been put in place. And it was those things that needed to be solved. this new entity was created. And this new entity was created. and was supposed to sort of streamline things. We're now in 2019. Now, by this point, in January 2019, it was already commonly known among senior team members who had been appointed to lead this organisation. So there would already been a chief exec appointed by the Secretary of State to lead the organisation at the beginning of 2019. This is Matthew Gould. Uh, Matthew Gould. And um, that sort of carried on going. And by April, the new organization came into existence officially. Um, and then by July, of course, formally launched. And the first thing that happened before it formally launched was a prioritization exercise going through what programs they're going to keep and which programs they were going to close and what budgets they were going to cut and what was going to be moved around. And um, it was an interesting process. It was, it sort of started off around, well, what should we deliver and why? But it then ended up becoming very much about just slicing money off budgets and it seemed to me it was a little bit arbitrary and that was interesting it was interesting seeing that happen Um, I remember having to defend the existence of 111 and 111 Online and the triage systems and if you look at it now you sort of think how on earth did we have to defend something like that yeah. that has now become the
0: single thing well, that was used was, during COVID? I was thinking about this, though. There was a period where 111 got dragged through the press. And uh, yeah. and it seems so long ago, I, I can't even remember quite why. But I just remember there was a lot of bad bad press around one and I think there was, I can't do
1: you remember this? Absolutely, I remember being involved and having to respond to things and support colleagues responding to things and there definitely was a time, there was a time if we go right back to 2012, 2013, there was a time when um, core handling times were really, really long so people had to wait ages or they didn't get call back or so they didn't get to speak to a clinician um, or lots of things happened. And if you look at the reasons why we sort of had, you know, the system had an idea of creating this disaggregated model, but didn't really resource it and staff it Mm. in a way that it should have been to deal with the volume. There's also a lack of understanding of the volumes of people involved. You know, in 2012, 2013, the number of people using a phone and phoning someone was quite different when GP Out of Hours was created Mm. 15, 20 years before that. And so there were problems with the system. There were also some incidents that took place. There were situations where where patients were triaged in a certain way, where the outcome should have been different. There was some political interference in it because there was a perception that cases were being unnecessarily referred to the ambulance or the ED, to the emergency department. And my response to that was quite often, well... Where else were they gonna be referred? You can't blame the entity that's referring them for <laughs> referring them. They have to go somewhere. And yes, there's a volume, but they're not making that volume higher than it should be. It then comes down to clinical judgment. And it's it's taken some time to get people to understand that these are the same colleagues that might work with you in practice that might be working the evening. They're not any different. It's just the constraints are operating in. So there was definitely a period of time where there was a lot of bad press. And and I'm not saying that some of it wasn't justified. Uh, It probably was. And we will have to learn from that and reflect on it. But at the same time, it's still a very cost-effective, clinically cost-effective system for what it does and the volume it deals with. You know, 111 uh, and 119 deals with about 30 million um, cases a year on on average during COVID. Of course, it was much higher. Um, And so it's interesting when I reflect back, I think we actually had to defend its existence Mm. at that point when NHSX came into being. And now, of course, the system has become quite reliant on this and it may not be reliant forever. Things will change. I want to develop something new. There might be a new way of triaging people. There might be a way of new way of assessing illness. But right now, it's one of the only things that we've got that does things at that scale and that volume. And and along that journey, when we were thinking about 111 and 111 Online, there was a long discussion about buying in a third party triage system. And the reason this came about, because GPs in particular, but lots of colleagues across the system were very critical of the triage that took place. Uh, That they felt that it was unnecessary, that it was risk averse, um, that too many people being sent to different parts of the system. And then NHS England, and I was part of it, went through a whole exercise of looking at third party suppliers what you soon discovered is that third-party suppliers weren't willing to take the clinical risk on of the triage decisions to the same extent the NHS does itself, Mm. that the cost of third-party systems was significantly higher than what the state currently pays for the existing system. Uh, And on top of that, we'd have ended up with a postcode lottery of triage. So very soon, it didn't become uh, sustainable to have these sorts of
0: because it would have been different suppliers in different regions. that's right. yeah,
1: so if you if your call was answered, let's say, in the north of England, you could have ended up with a different triage outcome to the south of England. The way the information would have flowed through to a local provider, uh, would not have meant the same thing. So clinically, I might have seen two pieces of you know, information that looked the same, but the way they arrived would mean different things. But I may not have known that. And so you soon realise that this model of having different triage providers all around the country probably isn't going to work, given that we rely on calls being answered nationally across different parts of the country. Um, and equally, the same clinical governance model didn't exist. Yeah, this is health tech, this is a decision support system. It is the very nature of health tech. And if we don't have confidence in it, and we don't have a risk model that goes alongside it, how is anyone going to be assured of anything? And at the moment, whilst people may think NHS digital is slow, it's also got some of the most robust clinical governance in place of any health tech provider. And um, they've done very well to maintain the integrity of the clinical decision support system. Now, a lot of people will disagree and say that it's risk averse, it's slow to change. In many ways, though, when you look at the process they go through, I have a high degree of confidence in the clinical reliability of their system compared to many other systems I've examined, uh, both in the UK and around the world. So, yeah, so that, that was that was an interesting experience going through that. And certainly as I went through an HSX, that was... Interesting, making arguments to maintain that and its position. But NHSX was a really fascinating place. There were lots of new, shiny things, people with new ideas. Great to see the enthusiasm. Um, but at the same time, it was a period of rapid change, and things that I noticed that I didn't necessarily like or agree with, and some things that I quite openly spoke out about. And the first one was in in July, and I still remember it. In the NHS, uh, and I mentioned the referral previously in dentistry, for example, and in pharmacy, but to make referrals between organizations, you're relying on NHS Mail. And uh, in my own practice, I had to use NHS Mail to make a referral. And this process was absolutely awful. I had to get this PDF form, print it <laughs> off, write on the form, scan it in, upload it, send it somewhere. And then they would send it back to say it's not the right place, send it somewhere else, but use a different form. And this cycle carries on. And NHS England, at that time, through one of the offices in NHS England, the office of the chief dental officer, insisted that NHS Mail should be the only thing that people use for referral uh, between dentistry and whichever part of the system. Now, I know this is completely illogical, makes no sense. In fact, there's a standard that NHS Digital recreated that allows you to have different mail systems that meet the same standard. But of course, NHS England itself, another part of the part of NHS England, was insisting on NHS Mail. I remember writing a blog about the clinical safety risks with using using NHS Mail, and I I experienced it with one of my patients. One of my patients needed an urgent referral um, to Barts for, uh, for suspected cancer lesion by NHS Mail. Of course, this entire thing got missed because the NHS Mail system uh, of course transmitted it but the case got missed because it ended up in junk mail on the other side mm. because the attachment was too big this is NHS mail NHS mail mm. it's, and it's and it's not their fault but it got missed and then I got a letter back eventually that the patient had missed and we had to refer again now luckily the situation got managed and I got very frustrated because clinically this is not right we've got technology we're being in, enforced upon the profession that isn't right for, and fit for purpose I remember writing a blog about it remember the following day or after it was published um, I got called into the office first of all sort of said well you can't write a blog like this I was like why not I'm like you're criticising NHS Mail I'm, I'm not criticising NHS Mail I'm criticising clinical safety risks from being enforced uh, to use a system uh, it's nothing wrong with NHS Mail I sort of told no one said Certain terms, but if this happens again, you'll be sacked. The very same day, you get called in another office by someone more senior and told you shouldn't have written that. If you're a civil servant, you would have been sacked. It's like that's very interesting. Sorry, I wrote this uh, blog, but it's true. We shouldn't be using this referral process for urgent referrals. Things are so critical. This is dangerous, and these are the reasons it's dangerous. So I'm sorry you feel that way, but this is the, the truth of the matter. But it's very much at that point. I got a sense of the organisation, which is. It's all fine when you're going to wave your hands and say positive things, but if you're going to say anything negative about technology or raise an issue, uh you can't do so publicly, which doesn't sit right with me for a public organization mm. using public money in a system that is for the public. We should be open about what we can learn and improve on and do better. So that was kind of the first bit that didn't sort of sit right with me.
0: So that was within an HSX this was happening. The that was post. within an HSX.
1: Right. That's right. And uh that was with uh, those senior to me so you can do the maths, but I was obviously reasonably senior at the time. There weren't that many people who were more senior than me in NHSX. Um, and uh, yes, so they they didn't like that approach. The next thing that sort of emerged then that follows that was uh, the recruitment process in NHSX. I, I'm I'm very big on um, transparency in recruitment. It's very important to me, especially when it comes to us trying to improve diversity across technology now that doesn't mean we should recruit people who come from different backgrounds for the sake of it but we should do it on merit and the processes i was seeing in front of me didn't necessarily lend themselves to being open and transparent Mm. so the next issue then was around the recruitment at that time the uh, cnio and uh, what happened of course an advert went out that advert pretty much isolated it down to probably less than five candidates that could have applied for that role. And um, given that the seniority of NHSX had just a couple of weeks earlier at uh, summer school been talking about you know, how they support diversity, it's very strange that such a senior appointment almost made it impossible for
0: candidates other than a small group. How did it constrain it to such? That, that's quite contrived, isn't it? Like I, I couldn't, If I was trying to force on to. I mean, maybe I've never just been in this position, you know, I run a small, limited company. If I was running a large public sector organization and I had my eye on recruiting a certain person, w- what do you mean by that? How how did they manage to if
1: you took the criteria for the role at the time? It meant that only people who were already very senior could apply for that role. And only people with certain backgrounds, certain qualifications, certain experiences could apply. And that would narrow it right down to very few people in the NHS that could apply for that role. Now, this is where the problem comes in. If you look at the NHS as a whole... And you take each grade um, by its grade title, so VSM or ESM, and then band nine and so forth and go down, most candidates that are non-white will not be above a band nine. Some might be, but very few. Now, if we want, and most of the nursing workforce, and it is this was a senior nurse role, would have been in that category of people that would never have been eligible to apply, but yet they might have experience or aspirations. Mm. And so this creates a problem. This then means that the pool of people that can apply for this role is narrowed right down to a few. And those few happen to be not from a diverse background, and they can only be about five people or so. And 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 this is very difficult. And I don't know, you know, I'd like to think it wasn't deliberate, but I'd also like to understand why it wasn't more thought out. Because given that there was so much talk about diversity and inclusivity the week almost a couple of weeks before at the summer school, why was it then that an advert goes out not long after, which almost has no thought as to the very thing they were speaking about about two weeks before? So this was very difficult for me. And obviously, I I raised it and I made a public comment about it, which didn't go down very well at all. But I, I did feel it had to be said because it demonstrated the organization wasn't following on its actions. Its words and actions were quite different. Yes, the words might have indicated they want to be more diverse. Their actions in terms of a job advert very clearly demonstrated that that didn't seem to be their intention. That was kind of area number two. The third area, though, which was the most difficult. So I was the only, at that time, non-white director at that time in that part of the system. And many of my other colleagues had already left by this point. people I'd worked with had already gone. Um, Matthew Swindells had left. Will Smart had left. Juliette Bauer had left. Keith McNeil had gone. These are all the people sort of I'd worked with for a long time at all already gone and left
0: at this point there seemed to be quite a churn I was really hopeful of NHSX I went in really early and did a show and tell session there was Ian O'Neill there you know I'm a big fan of I met him when I did the show and tell I said I think this was probably March 2019 so I think it'd only been going a couple of months and uh, I remember doing a presentation and just sort of saying yeah I hope this will be like GDS I hope it will be you know I'm big I'm big fan of the GDS department I'm a big fan of our UK public sector tech generally you know I had great hopes for it and then over the next sort of six months people who are respected and I thought were great there were piling out the door and I thought you know I started sniffing and thinking what's going on there? So.
1: And it, it was interesting that, you know, some really good people went, and I think they all went for different reasons. Um, I think some of them had uh, things they wanted to try and achieve and do, and the new organization probably wasn't going to lend itself to that. Some of them um, uh, had to move on because I think the politics of the organization changed, uh, and that was probably quite difficult. There were also restructures internally that changed people's roles and positions. Um, And people moved on. And by the time we got to sort of October 2019, There was a growing number of people that had concerns about fairness equality discrimination in the organization and they all approached me and they approached me and um raised various concerns with me and i couldn't not do anything about it so i uh raised my concerns with those senior to me and wrote them down and put them not and they were not my own concerns but things people relate to me and nothing happened Nothing happened at all. Um, and then uh, within about a week or so, uh, I you know, my contract was coming to an end anyway. And um, I was on a fixed-term arrangement. And I had a fairly interesting discussion the sort of following week, which is um, well, it's time for you to sort of go now. And uh, at that point, I um, left and uh, moved on. But it was interesting to see what was going on in the organization. And even if I sort of reflect back on it now, it definitely didn't have the, the principles and the hallmarks of what happened in GDS. That was, of course, the intention, but it didn't operate like that. And I'll give you examples. If you think about GDS, the governance is quite distributed. Decision-making and power is, um, is distributed to the lowest level. People really do work in multi-disciplinary teams, taking the best principles of working in a digital environment. And um, I didn't really see those things in NHSX. I saw the names and the titles appear, but the governance was still very much a very old school form of governance: committees and layers, decisions coming top-down, control mechanisms um very much sort of controls at every level and uh it, it it didn't really reflect the sort of gds way of working um and, and gds have got some fantastic people having met those individuals going through various um uh, gates and checks for various programs They've got some great people there who used to advise on how to improve things, and often they would be championing user-centered design. They would be asking questions about whether we've done the right amount of user research and things like that. And we would, and, and it was actually quite useful as an SRO getting that kind of challenge from them because it made us work harder, do better. But I wasn't really seeing that in NHSX, and and, and from Frank, there were things times where. User experience is almost used as something that has been done when it hadn't been done. You know, One example for me was with ERS as a program. ERS is electronic referral systems. And there was a time when uh, X and NHS Digital wanted to force that into pharmacies. And so when I was challenging it. My question was, well, have you actually done user research? And what user research have you done? And What's come out of it before you start all of this? And what was the experience in the pilot sites that you ran? Let's go through that. And it's very much sort of told, oh, well, we've done this. And uh, the users like it. I was like, well, show me, tell me, explain it to me. I want to see it. I want to understand it. Where, Where are these personas? Let's go through this. And of course, none of this existed, but it was almost a tick box exercise used to justify an outcome. And that wasn't the only time. There were other things as well. There was another situation, which I've been very public about, around SNOMED CT. And I'm not, I'm a fan of SNOMED CT, but it has to meet a business purpose and an outcome. It has to meet a benefit for society, for people, mm. for users. In this situation, it was just forced upon the system under the umbrella of NHSX. So one department, one, one NHS England department wanted to enforce it. There wasn't really a reason for it, apart from it says it in legislation. But legislation has a purpose. It has to exist for it to achieve an outcome. It can't just be snowmen for the sake of snowmen. And um, despite setting out and writing out the reservations as to why this wasn't the right approach at that point in time, NHSX and senior people that made a decision will support that and just go with it um to keep the peace almost rather than having a difficult conversation as to why it's the right thing to do and why it's right for users and what the benefits might be so um it was things like that that you sort of see were, were crumbling and, and now when i look back on it and look back at what's happened afterwards i i described it as vanity projects there were lots of vanity projects that were all. Well, in train and have been going but very few outcomes that have been delivered not often pivots to things along the way that may not necessarily be the right thing for the system but are interesting things for them to work on and i'm sure there have been some things that have been useful and I'm, I'm sure it's not all been difficult but it's definitely been sometimes without strategy sometimes without purpose and uh, quite often without any design in mind and and very often without the right resources to achieve the outcome um, so those are the sorts of things I think they could have done a lot better on and I hope in its next incarnation as NHS England it does get better and I think there's an opportunity to make it better but certainly the last two years feel like they've been a distraction
0: Yeah I'm, I'm detecting a theme that I I see a lot of which is um, uh, in, in workforce, in the world we work in, in workforce, there's the same sort of thing where there's like certain standards that they want to enforce and they, they look at the market and they look at how these things are currently being done. And there's a frustration that they could somehow coordinate everything by just mandating something, by just, just picking something. And, and the reason, you know, all of these sort of disparate groups aren't coordinating well is because nobody has come in with a big stick and said, you must do it this way. There was, no, there was no coordinating authority on the top. And I'm sympathetic to that idea, but it does often go wrong. <laughs> because I think from my perspective, there's never, there's never understanding that actually that consensus about what is a good standard often actually bubbles up from the bottom that, that people go, ah, that, you know, like USB connectors or Actually, a good example, you, you mentioned the SNOMED CT thing and said, you know, like, that that's an obvious thing to try and coordinate on, isn't it? I mean, if everyone's using the same medical coding system, that, that does sound like a sensible, top-down, we must do this. But I remember the, the, the kind of push to get rid of fax machines in the NHS, and I looked at that as, a, as an engineer, and I thought, I I can see where this is coming from, but you're completely missing the role of what a fax machine actually does. It's like a location-based authentication. You know, you could be an an agency nurse that's just ended up in an emergency department who's on that ward for that night, probably doesn't even have an email or login or anything to any system because, you know, don't normally work in that hospital or don't work in that department, it is location-based authentication. <laughs> you you are stood next to the fax machine, so you, you have access to it. And th- there was like a complete lack of understanding that actually... It's not, it's not just this big stick where you can coordinate from the top. You have to really understand what's going on at the bottom and, and provide people with alternatives that then become the standard that, that, that there's a consensus around. Does that make sense? It,
1: it became tech for the sake of tech. It didn't can't become tech for the sake of purpose. Fax machine is a great example because the fax machine exactly is that. It's location. It's also record. Imagine this places of paper record. That piece of paper is the record, is going into the record quite often. And it's so many things. It's easy to use. It's a location. It's a physical piece of paper that's formed part of the record. It's part of authority. There are so many things that go alongside the existence of the facts. Now, it might be that we all agree, OK, we're going to get rid of this facts or the equivalent of it. But we have to really understand the user, the problem, their journey, the components, the dependencies. Um, and I remember other things like the fax was quite often the only way that you could coordinate, liaise with the coroner's office, for example, because they on the other side don't have any other technology they can use. They don't have email on their side. So you ended up having to, at that point, use the fax. And it was it just became this victim uh, at, you know, being about the fax machine. And actually, if we'd taken a step back, and thought about, okay, what is it we need to change in... does it we need to understand about the user? What is it we need to change? Maybe we would have approached that entire thing differently, but it just became a story about fax and the biggest buyer of mm. pages and fax machines, and it all just sort of started becoming focused on the physical hardware.
0: Yeah, that, that, that was impressive because it was just sort of seen as this archaic technology, and we could just replace it. <laughs> and uh, it, it's an example of Chesterton's fence. You ever heard of Chesterton's fence? Mm-hmm. No, it's this, it's this principle that, you know, the re- reform should not be made until the reasoning behind the existing state of affairs is understood. It's a kind of known um, uh, fallacy, really, um, that you that you, can, <laughs> that you can come along not knowing why something exists and, and just just remove it without any thought because it just looks old or it looks...
1: And if we took that approach, we'd probably take down most of our hospital buildings.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Most of them look really old. So what can we learn from that NHSX? What did you take from that? What would you hope if someone was setting up, well, now we're we're merging everything back together again, what lessons can be learned?
1: I I think the first thing is, is understand the system, the requirements, people on the ground, and uh, recognition that not everything we decided from the center and when we're thinking about priorities, work with people on the ground. And the biggest thing that I still look back to and take value from is having teams that can work across the system uh, and that are experienced enough as well that they understand the environment in which we're trying to make change happen but also realising that it's not change for the sake of change, it's change for the sake of an outcome. And working with people on the ground that are going to experience the outcome and modifying what we do rapidly around those outcomes. And, and certainly, if I go back to some of the programs that have been successful, um, there have been different reasons they've been successful, but there's lots we can learn from those things. But the biggest thing is the connectivity between people, both patients, citizens, and our users, whether they're clinicians or the rest of the healthcare workforce, and really listening to them and listening to their needs and working out how do we avoid creating more work for them and really minimizing... Uh, the excess burden we put on them by making changes happen. Um, But listening to them is so important and not trying to force things where they don't fit. Um, So in the next iteration, I'd say, listen to the teams on the ground and avoid things like avoid forcing down a single EHR across the system or avoid forcing down a single system to do a particular thing without understanding what the requirements are for the different parts of the NHS, because NHS is so diverse in terms of the service provision as well. So um, listen to people, connect
0: and work with local teams on the ground. Groove all of that. <laughs> So what's, what's your hopes for the future of the NHS?
1: Well, I think the NHS is still here for a long time to come. I don't think it's going anywhere because it's already been here for a fairly long period of time. And I think society, um, quite rightly, has a lot of uh, time for the NHS and wants it to succeed. And in that, I would like for the next iteration, for there to be a coherent strategy for digitization. Uh, I would really enjoy for there to be a great organizational design and structure that means that that sort of transcends across boundaries and entities, irrespective of the legal form of those entities. And the most important thing that goes alongside it is properly resourcing it, making decisions about what can be done, but also what can't be done. This isn't a time where the senior decision-maker and the leaders have to be diplomatic about everything. There are times when they're going to have to make a hard decisions about what can't be funded and prioritise those things that are most important to the system, which means there'll be some things that don't fall within the gift of the digital agencies of the NHS uh, and are left to other parts of the system. So those sorts of realisms need to come out. And I really hope in the next iteration, those tough decisions are made, but we end up focusing on those things which make the biggest difference, the use of technology and digital for
0: we're big advocates inside for open source technology. I've, we've discussed public money, public code. Um, part of that is around sort of transparency rather than just necessarily the open sourceness of the code. I don't think our clients really care about that. It's, it's about creating that kind of bottom up thing. What, what's your take on sort of the future of digital and particularly perhaps sort of open source or more uh, collaborative platforms?
1: So I have a slightly extreme view, which is we first need to educate people around what it is and that it's not free. So quite often people conflate open source with it being free, but it can't be free. People's time is going into this. So we need a better way of rewarding people who are involved in the development of open source for the benefit of all and recognizing that there is a cost involved. And that means we need a different way of paying for it that the state currently doesn't really have. But I do think if we did invest, allocate resource, create a funding model, create a way of paying for it, we'd probably get more, dare I say, innovation in in open source and we'd probably get more players in the market and we'd probably get better outcomes for the system overall because it might be that local teams actually start getting involved in this if there's a stream. Otherwise, we'll have the opposite. We're going to end up with only those that can afford to develop. And in order to do that, they might have to protect what it is they're they're providing and charge a lot for it, because that's the current moral we exist in. And and that's not their fault. That's just the system in which we exist. And that's the way the state is currently funding things. So if we're going to have a future and it's going to be a transformed future, and we are going to embrace open source then we need to pay for it and we'd be willing to accept there's a cost involved in this and support entities uh, in actually resourcing them
0: properly yeah so follow the money really in a in a sense we uh, yeah <laughs> pretty much yeah okay. well that's my that's my feeling with with sort of procurement um and how these platforms come about is it's it's actually the selection process that that um, dictates what you end up with in terms of the attributes of the things you then then select for. I was, I was interested when you were talking about sort of diversity of recruitment. We at side have got a really good uh, history of having female engineers. And I, I say we don't bang on about it, but I've banged on about it a little bit in the sense that I keep talking about how we don't bang on about it. <laughs> but it wasn't really intentional. And one of the things about this company is it, there is quite a lot of there's quite a lot of nepotism uh, in a sense like it's we we often recruit people because we know them because we know their reputation and i wonder sometimes the sort of creativity uh, needed in business is often to flip things and and think how you're trying to do something and just what if i did completely the opposite of this and when it comes to recruitment i do wonder sometimes whether the sort of strive to have a fair process ends up creating something that's very unfair, because when I think about how we've ended up with with a lot of female engineers, one of the things that's happened is that I'll be going about my day, and I'll stumble across uh, a girl, lady, you know, like so. We've had we've had uh, young. I say girl because um, we have like work experience kids, you know, people at school, like girls who are interested in computer science. One, one, of, one of our clients' daughters came in to do some uh, work experience with us. She was weighing up whether to become a doctor or a computer scientist. And I won her over to the computer science world. Yeah, go me. <laughs> and she's off doing a degree in that. But, you know, we didn't put out an advert for those jobs and then sort of, I don't know, sort of CV blind recruit often it was a case of saying actually there's somebody there who is really interested in computer science and we want we want to encourage that and let them know that, that that this is a good place for them to come and work and there are other female engineers here and and before we know it there's sort of I wouldn't say it was like a positive discrimination because it honestly wasn't. It was more a case of oh you're interested in this and then we get them in. I, 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 I I'm struggling to explain it really, but it it was it was like if we try to do it fairly and I feel like this when when people procure systems as well that there's this sort of belief that you can run a fair recruitment, which means basically just selecting on the basis of features and not on reputation. Like I'd be just our interaction today, you know, hearing what you've had to say that has value to me. If I was recruiting a role, I'd be way more inclined to, to push Sam Shaw <laughs> into this organization. I'd be way more inclined. Like your, your interactions prior to, to that process are, are important. And sometimes I wonder if we, if we actually just flip that whole thing on its head and became Not nepotistic in in the kind of like old-fashioned sense, but just be more transparent about why you're recruiting someone, rather than say, okay, I'm just blindly doing this. I'm gonna uh, do blind recruitment. I'm not gonna see anyone's names. I'm not gonna see their their because then you're chucking out all reputation and you're chucking out that ability to sort of go, okay, this is somebody who's interested in this and and bring them in i'm just talking from our experience really of kind of female engineers and uh, and how how that might come about in another in setting having more diver, ethnically diverse uh, leadership
1: so i think when it comes to recruitment it depends on the circumstances now those of us that are running private entities that are not part of the state um i think obviously we have much more latitude to do what we want to do i think it's great that in your organization You've clearly, you're clearly attracting talent and attracting them from underrepresented groups because there aren't enough females in technology where people want to get there. And it's great that you found a way to encourage them and uh, attract them into the organisation, create a safe, inclusive space, for people to flourish, uh, and that's fantastic. And I, I think there is a there is room for that. And when we get to our public institutions that are completely publicly funded and are part of the state and part of the governance and the architecture of the state... I think there is some responsibility to have both openness and transparency. Now, we can still run a fair process, and you can still end up with the best person for the role. But then it means we have to modify the process to allow the individuals to demonstrate those attributes, those qualities that do set them apart. So not simply just a form that is blanket, not simply just an interview process, but other components to the process that allow the attributes of that individual to come out. And I certainly think the more senior we go in the system, recognizing the history of nepotism in the system and people coming from a single club, as it were, I definitely think for certain for senior roles, we have to have the greatest degree of transparency. And it may be that certain people are picked for certain jobs because of certain attributes. We need to allow the process to highlight those attributes that demonstrates that they were the best person for the for that particular role. And it might be in certain cases there may only be one individual. Although I would say and and, and I'd strongly say. That that's probably quite often not the case in most senior roles. There are probably multiple people that can do that can do those roles. And until we get to a point where society does have the opportunity for everyone to get into those roles, irrespective of their background, whether they're from a single parent family, whether they come from a deprived part of the country, whether they come from an ethnic minority background, whether they have some other characteristic, until we get to the point where everyone has equal opportunity in some form to get to that place and form those relationships, I think it's very hard for, for senior positions in state to be appointed in that way. I certainly think as we get further down the system, there might be other ways of doing it, giving people orientation opportunities, giving people shadowing opportunities, other things to help them gain the skills and those relationships to be able to apply for those roles. And of course, for those of us outside of the state, there's a lot more that we can do and have a lot more freedom to do. But at the same time, I would say give people an opportunity then to build their relationships. Give them other ways of forming the relationships before the roles come along so you actually have an opportunity to get to know people then as part of sort of a trial period or an orientation period, or an experience period, that when the role comes up, you're making a decision not just based on application form, but based on a range of people that have effectively gone through an extended recruitment process, you could say. But certainly the opposite of that is happening in the center of state. We've seen the CEO or the chief of... Test and trace being parachuted in. We've seen the CEO of NHSX having been parachuted in and being given a job. We've seen that happen across lots of other senior roles in state. And I would certainly say they weren't necessarily the best qualified most capable people for those jobs they were put in those roles because the clubs they belong to the circles they they uh, frequent and the people that they know and have grown up with have allowed them into those roles not necessarily mm. because they are the best for those roles yeah i
0: guess i'm, I'm saying that the salute perhaps the solution to that is to, is for them to just be uh, transparent about that to, <laughs> to be, well, I know this person, I've worked with them here and I want Matthew Gould to be the chief exec of this, this organization. And, it, you know, sunlight's a great disinfectant. And I just sometimes wonder whether the, the appearance of a fair process can actually end up having the opposite effect.
1: And if it wasn't the state, people could do that. But given that it's a state and that there are rights, the citizens still, as at this point in time, have rights uh, as a society. It, you're quite right that those things should be made transparent, that that's how they came about. Uh, and half of this is the sort of, Slight cover-up that goes on to avoid demonstrating that it took place. But at the same time, given that it's a state, there's senior roles paid at very high salaries, I think there does need to be a greater degree of transparency around not only the process, but also the why.
0: Yeah, I I think that's what I'm getting at really, is, is like the why. It's the transparency of the why, because I feel like everyone knows the why, but it's not actually spoken of. And then and then we we have this sort of fictional fair process. That's not fair. It doesn't. It doesn't.
1: It <laughs> and we end up with this retrofitting narrative as to why the person, the entity is best. You can see it right now, that everyone's being very positive about the changes between NHS Digital and HSX and NHS England, and that this is going to be amazing. Actually, we don't know if it's going to be amazing we have no idea if it will. We can tell ourselves to be positive about it, but actually I think we have to be realistic that we've been in this circle before. And it's the same we put senior people into roles, sort of come in, and the first thing here is, oh, well, they did, they did these things really well in their last five jobs. Yeah, okay, they did those things really well in those five jobs. Those things they did have no bearing whatsoever on the job they're about to do. Um, it'd be like me hiring someone to work for me that has no experience in digital health or technology or in clinical practice, but they were really good as uh, uh, in in some other role as a banker or a, uh, an accountant somewhere. But that doesn't qualify them in healthcare. And it's those sorts of things where we've got to avoid. You know this sort of optimism bias that creeps in where we see things through a different lens. And that happens with our organizations and with our people.
0: Yeah, understood. What what are you up to now? So post-HSX? So
1: now I do a number of things. I have a couple of advisory roles with a couple of organizations that I work with. So um, with a few small digital health organizations, um, Orca, Patchwork, Think Research, and a couple of others that are involved in different aspects of healthcare technology. And they sort of span the spectrum of everything from um, apps all the way through to uh, workforce solutions and clinical decision support systems. So that's really interesting because it sort of touched on different things I've done. Mm-hmm. I also work with some um, consumer-facing organizations. So I work for a company called Newman, which is a men's health company in digital health. And uh, it's great. I'm the chief medical strategy officer. So I really get involved in everything from the public uh, sort of way in which human is viewed all the way through to the technology that we use, the development of our EHR and our own platforms, uh, as well as sort of the regulatory piece. So that's really interesting. And then I get to work in academia. So I do some work with UCL, with University of Central Lancashire, and with Ulster University. And I get involved with in everything from computer science, medical schools and digital health. So it's really enjoyable to work with undergraduates, postgraduates, and many other people involved in the in research around digital health. And, uh, and I'll do some work in communications and um, PR marketing with an entity called Foyt. Freud's communications, does lots of work across uh, government public sector um, globally it's very big on sustainability and uh, it's a really enjoyable part of what I do and then I'm really lucky and I get to work on some fantastic advisory boards, one in particular Silverbuck which is a really good bunch of people that are doing some fantastic work in health tech, supporting organisations across health and health tech with communications Um, and so I'm, I'm fortunate to have just a really varied role and above all of course i still work clinically in primary care and uh, and do, do that a little bit each week so um yeah i've got a nice blend of different things that i'm doing
0: yeah that sounds like 10 jobs so <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot so we have one last question that we always ask and uh, it's going to put you on the spot a bit it's if there's one thing our listeners should know what would that be
1: so there's one thing listeners should know. Be militant. Keep asking the why question and don't take no for an answer. Keep asking. And until you get the answer, don't stop. But be militant. Keep, uh, stand up for what you believe in.
0: I love it. Yes. Yes. True, true, true. I like that. I love the rebels. This is somewhere I come from. It's like the Pareto principle. It's like 80-20. There's, there's probably a thing in your, your head that you're super passionate about and really, we should concentrate on that eighty percent of the time. Is that right?
1: Pretty, pretty much. And that thing's probably got nothing to do with health tech or digital. Oh come on, what's it. that then? What's that? Human rights. So um, when I when I retrained in law, that's become my thing, and uh, I, I I do like uh, supporting the underdog. That is uh, a big big part of uh, what I like doing, and supporting the underdog and working with human rights organisations.
0: Okay, where are the big where are the big human rights issues? What? On your deathbed, when you go, oh, yeah, I did a good job sorting that thing out that I disliked, what, what would that be?
1: It wasn't anything major, but it was supporting underrepresented um, clinicians, people who get really trodden on by the system, particularly in the UK, and representing them in internal processes, in hearings, in other mechanisms in order to make sure that their rights are heard and executed and um, these are often people that are without means. They're quite often uh, overseas clinicians that come to the UK. They don't have representation from a trade union or from a defence organisation. And um, working for them pro bono to help them get the outcome is some, is quite rewarding, especially when you know they can come back into the workforce and make a difference.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. What sort of issues are they facing? What, what are the big ones? Quite
1: often it's discrimination. Sometimes they've um, whistleblown about something. Uh, quite often, maybe overlooked for career progression without mm. good reason. Um, sometimes it's just not being successful getting a job, or other times it's about the training environment where they are uh, certainly vilified in the training environment unfairly, so by the structures that exist. Um, so those are generally the sorts of things and uh, to finally get involved with.
0: Yeah, uh, can I can we go to the zone of uncomfortable debate as Jerry McDonald sometimes calls it? Just, uh, Honestly, this is said with with good intent. Yeah, let me let me caveat it with that. You're going, oh my god, what's he going to say? How do how does somebody from an ethnic minority say, know, the reason for discrimination? A, a black friend said to me once, um, racism actually drives you mad because you know if you're if you go into a supermarket and someone runs over your foot and you're like, and then they like retaliate against you and you come away and you're like if I was white, would that have been different? And you don't know because you have no other existence. And when that happens to me, people, people piss me off all the time. And, and I probably annoy people all the time. And that question never just comes in. But I only have my one existence. And I, how do <laughs> people ethnic minorities ascertain that it is definitely a racial component? as opposed to something else. Is that
1: a fair question? It's a great question. It's a fantastic question. It's a fantastic question. I think that's a fantastic question. Most of my life, if I'm uh, frank, I don't think I experienced real racism. Like I've lived in different parts of the world and I was in a community where racism wasn't really a thing in the same way.
0: Where where was that? Where did you grow up? I
1: I lived for a little while in West Africa, then East Africa, and then mainly in in the UK, in West London. And it wasn't really an issue. Yes, there were times when there was the name calling and those sorts of things, which was obvious racism. But other than that there wasn't really racism. And it was only later on when I was uh, in East London that I really recognised the stark differences between societies and groups. And that's probably when I thought about it more than ever. And as I went through the system and started taking on pro bono cases, that's when I really realised that there is something not right. And I think most of the time, there probably isn't uh, overt racism most of the time. But when it does happen, it can be quite obvious. And it's not just one thing. Sometimes it might be a combination of things. So yes, a new example of someone perhaps accidentally putting a trolley over someone's foot or something. In its own right, that probably is not going to be classified as racist. But imagine if that happened again and again and again. It only happened to the one person and not to anyone else around. And it became deliberate and a sequence of events. And at that point, you have to ask the question that, why is this person completely different to the other person in terms of what keeps happening? And what is it about them that's different? And it may be race, it may be age, it may be something else, but they might be a factor. So I don't think it's possible on like one-off events or things like that, unless it's obvious name calling or something, that it'd be possible to identify racism. But I think when there's a sequence of events, when there's a culture, when there's an environment, you can see something institutionalized, That's when you might find that something's either racist or discriminatory, but it takes a body of evidence to come up with that. And so it's never clear cut. And, uh, and you know, there are many times that people might say something is due to race, when actually it may not be. There's no clear-cut answer on whether it's due to race or not. But there are other times when something possibly could be, but it's only when the sequence of events add up, either for that person or for other people, that you begin to realize there's probably a component of it. Thanks, Sam. It's been a real pleasure. Really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms. Learn more great insight by following Sam on Twitter at Healthy Opinion. You can find out more about Sard by visiting sardjv.co.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at SardJV and use hashtag Sardisms. Until next time, have a great week.